I think when most people think of future, past, and present, they have a very Charles Dickens view where the past is something that happened a while ago, the present's what's currently happening, and the future is something that hasn't happened yet. Well, this novel is going to challenge that. William Faulkner has a very complex and interesting view when it comes to time. His characters exist at the intersection of characters in time with events out of time. And there's a very famous quote, the past is never dead, it's not even past. Let's spend today focusing on time and what is Faulkner's most reputable novel to focus on this. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am out of time crypto. And we are going to be doing an in-depth conversation on William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. If you're new here, we go heavy into detail into the books that we read. Now, if you're coming here, this is our second video in the in-depth series on this. And we made a decision not to do just the Quentin chapter because it's really not fair, I feel like, to some of the themes that we want to talk about. If we're going to talk about time, we have to talk about all the Compson boys. Uh, we want to talk about Old South, New South, which we're going to be doing next week. So we decided to kind of pause this and kind of combine at least chapters two and three for today's talk on time. Yeah, I think that's fair because this book is so unique. It's not one that you can just compartmentalize into chapters. I mean, it, they aren't even really chapters, are they? No, they're not. And, and that's what makes this interesting. So to get through today's conversation, I feel like we really need to focus on changing our perception our definition, maybe, of what time is, and really try to embrace what I feel like William Faulkner is going for in a very graceful manner with this book. I think the best thing you can do here is be more like Benji, and that way you'll be able to maybe better comprehend what Faulkner is trying to do here with time. You mean observe and just take in without passing judgment. I think because this book is so unique in the way that it's presenting a non-linear story. So Faulkner always brings the past into the present. That's part of his forte with this story. And that's when you start to realize that Faulkner views the present as the culmination of all of your past. It's not just what decision or what's happening right now. It's all the decisions that have led up to this moment for William Faulkner. But I'm going to read a quote to you from actually from another author named Ted Chang from a short piece called The Story of Your Life. What distinguishes their mode of awareness is not just that their actions coincide with history's events. It is also that their motives coincide with history's purposes. They act to create the future, to enact chronology. And I think that's a really interesting way to start breaking down this piece. It's hard to explain, I feel like, fatalism and determinism to different people. And one of the best ways to think about it is even though it's going to happen, the reason that a character might still proceed forward down that path is to enact chronology. When a police officer arrests you, you are now under arrest. He must legally say those words, at least in the United States of America, to officially arrest you. When you are being married under, under law, you must be now pronounced man and wife in order for that to become official. You must enact history in order to make it true. Or your perception of truth, which we can also discuss as well. So this is a story of the Compsons, the deconstruction of the South, the Southern way of life, the family, and even time, as we'll see with these. Most critics will agree that time is a critical component to understanding this novel. However, that's about all they agree on. How we interpret time to the characters, to the intersection of events varies greatly. The angle that we're going to try to take here to try to convince you or at least have you look at a specific way is involving a lot of our experience having read a lot of Faulkner with how he views time. Yeah, I think that most people have to drop what they think of time 
and really place themselves inside of these characters. And then each one is representing something different to the story. It's Some people will say Benji is the past, Quentin is the present, and Jason's the future. And that's not quite true. Because we can see that Quentin is constantly battling with the past. His his mind is a battlefield. And Jason's, how he tries to manipulate things for his future involves a lot of trying to suppress and ignore the past. And you'll see how the past keep keeps butting its way into their lives. And I'd even say with Jason, he's so obsessed with the future and the present that it starts to blur those lines together. And all of them, except for maybe Benji, or maybe Benji is the best example of them being too blurred and maybe gets less blurry as the story goes along. So how does Caddy fit into all of this? We've got three different days in the present presented in this book from three different Compson boys, and at no point is Caddy ever in the present for any of these stories. Every time Caddy is brought into this, she's assaulting the present. Her presence enters. I feel like Caddy's one of the most fascinating characters to not be in a story because she's the linchpin that holds the Compson boys together and is sometimes their major driving force whether positive or negative. So let's explore this a little bit. Let's start talking about how Benji is, I won't say the past, but is, let's get to what that definition is. This is going to be Faulkner's view, I think, of what the past is, right? So of the Compson children, his narrative is latest in time of the Compson children. So between Quentin, which is, you know, 1910, and, and Jason's, which is the day before Benji's, Benji's is the furthest along in time, which means he is the character with the most amount of past to tell in this story to begin with, right? Yeah, he has the most experiences of all of them. And when we're following around Benji, if you haven't watched our part one, make sure you check that out where we really break that down because that's a very complex but structured view. Benji is literally a video camera just walking around filming things. He's not passing judgment. We don't have a ton of introspection. We get the sensorial input into the video camera that is Benji's life. And there's no timestamp, and you can almost think of it as he's recording everything, but all the video is in a one-second clip. And what Benji's doing is just recording clips of what is in these, these intervals, if you will, to Crypto's point. And the idea is that the past is an accumulation, documentation of events and decisions in people's lives, right? And that past can't be changed, first of all. Right. So Benji's view of the present, okay? So so Benji has good control of the past. We're constantly flipping back to all these different events that have happened throughout time as opposed to the other Compson children. He has the most breath in how much we cover with him. Now, when we do this, when we flip back to the present, we constantly have characters saying, like, hush up that moaning. What are you moaning about? And it's it's at that moment when we snap back into the present, we realize that Benji has no present. He is literally being robbed of the present by his memories of the past. I think Benji's section represents the past the best, and it's just always out of your reach. It's just right there on your fingertips. It can always be the biggest parasite to your life robbing you of your present. And as far as futures go, Benji is clearly the character that has no future. I think this is symbolically represented now that you've read chapter three. It's officially called out how he is castrated as a result of that scene when he got out of the gate and bugged the Burgess girl. So literally by being becoming impotent 
to giving children, to bearing children of the future, your future is being taken away from yeah, you. Yeah, that was something that clicked with me heavily when I finally realized that and reflecting back upon it, and we talked about it, was that, wow, how much symbology is there with the castration and the impotence of Benji's character. Incredible writing. And that's on top of the fact that he is stuck mentally at, at, at a developmental stage. He is no longer moving forward. He has no present. He has no future. He's, his mind is stuck in the past, right? And to me, the argument that William Faulkner here is making for the past is that the past is the mausoleum of one's life. It's not what you used to be. It's what you are. Yeah. And what is Benji? He is kind of witnessing the decay of the South, if you will. Our friend Brian from Bookish put a video out there. I'd, I'll point you to his channel to kind of look at that. But in that video, he talks about how over time, as the only character that spans three decades in his narrative, he witnesses the decay of his family. He witnesses the decay of the people that care for him until we finally get to the final section where the only person that's caring for him, his, his blood relative and brother, wants to send him to an insane asylum. So... He's literally robbed and watches his family crumble and is made up of all of those events to make him this mirror of decay. Do you think that because Benji might not truly understand what is going on, that there represents a little bit of the South truly not understanding what's going on with their society and how it is shifting and changing, and they can do nothing about it either? Yeah, I think we'll go more into that in the next video with Old South and New South, but if if I were to place Benji into that analogy, the idea is I would place him right after the war where you don't know what's going on. You're not exactly sure we lost the war. What does that mean to us now? And there's a lot to be figured out at that point in time. You're just not sure what to say. That feels kind of like Benji to me in that, in that story. Good. Okay. So now we've discussed Benji. Let's move on to Faulkner's view of Quentin and him being the representation of present-ish. Not entirely, as we've said, they're kind of blurred, but a little bit more of present than obviously Benji or Jason. So while Benji is stuck in the past, Quentin is embroiled in it, right? His mind is literally a battlefield where the present isn't just this, what am I, what's the best thing to do right now? Because the problem is, is what led up to this point is a long history of events. And in the Compson family, there's been a lot of decay and issues and loss of innocence that has led up to the present, that the present isn't just alone in time. So the present is frequently described as one of the only moments that you have power. So the question that's being presented to us in chapter two particularly is what does Quentin choose to do with that power? How does he spend his present moment in this day? We have the opening quote, when the shadow of the sash appeared on the curtains, it was between seven and eight o'clock, and then I was in time again, hearing the watch. And the question is, what's happening? What does he mean that he's in time again? He just woke up. So he is, he is not, he's literally the victim of time coming upon him, not him choosing to wake up from the very moment of this day. Quentin is powerless in the face of time to start this chapter. He's one of those characters that is obsessed with time because he doesn't know what to do with himself. Well, and himself is questionable too, right? He haunts himself with his shadow, 
right? The shadow that he wants to stample, like the, to trample upon, the shadow that he wants to drown. He's haunted by time in the sense of his hunger pains hitting him in terms of hearing the clocks and the chimes constantly telling him to move forward that he's unable to stop. It's almost like a horror movie here where you hear the tick, 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 like coming after him like this monstrous villain. It, it's, it's very ominous. So what's one of the first things he does with power? Quentin literally pulls the hands off of his clock, which I think is one of the most memorable parts of this book for most people when they read that. He is so haunted and embroiled in in this war between the present and the past. He would rather pull the hands off of the clock than face time. But here's the question, Crypto. Does that stop time? No. Maybe to him, he hopes it will, but it won't. Well, he literally still hears the clock ticking, right? And we have that quote, because father said, clocks slay time. So the question we have to ask is, what's the point of this conversation? Why is he fighting time? So here's a very subjective interpretation that I'm, I'm going to go through here. So just like how Benji saw the world through Caddy, if you remember that opening chapter, 1898, his sister's muddy knickers he's looking up at as she loses her innocence looking in at death for the first time. The three Compson boys have to experience life through her. And you'll have to remember this was a short story that William Faulkner claims he could just never get right. He had to retell it from four different angles. So this, to me, is is the the angles of the of this book is revolving around Caddy's innocence and why Caddy's never in the present and why each of these Compson boys is obsessed with Caddy in some way. I would argue that Quentin's innocence is tied up with his sister, okay? Because in this moment, in, in the pear tree, she's losing her innocence to the world and they're living through her. And one of the hallmarks of innocence is sexuality. Yeah, as you mature, it's showing aging, showing the passage of time. We have this quote, purity is a negative state and therefore contrary to nature, it's nature hurting you, not Caddy. And I said, that's just words. And he said, so is virginity. And I said, you don't know. And I like how there's just literally no punctuation or anything here. It's, it's we're flowing through this conversation, but it's with himself. So does he really need that? He's speaking for his dad, but he's recalling his dad's moment. It's a different way of experiencing the past assaulting you in the present as opposed to Benji's view where you're the camera. Here's Quentin reliving intellectually the moment and intent behind the conversation, right? Yeah, it's genius how Faulkner does this, because if you were watching a movie, it'd be easy for a director to show the aging of a person, the passage of time through wrinkles and gray hair, and instead of just saying, hey, the person is old and gray now and has lots of wrinkles or leathery skin, he does it in such a unique way that it does take, I think, a lot of thought to appreciate what he's done here to show how these people are changing through puberty and on into their young adulthood. There's been movies on this, and I'd love to see them, because particularly this next scene, right? So as time passes, people lose innocence, right? Yeah. And we have this dual storytelling technique where when he finds the small Italian girl at the bakery grocery store, some store that goes dang when you enter, <laughs> <laughs> the little girl is the representation of innocence. Yes. And his sister, const his, her memory constantly invades these moments literally he just snaps to the thought of caddy constantly 
when looking after this girl, when looking after her innocence. I think a lot of that represents as you change, get older, you start to have hard time controlling your impulses as things just come upon you. You're like, whoa, why was I thinking about that? And, and what's happening to me? I don't get it. And that's what I think Faulkner's doing here with these things, just bombarding poor Quentin. And poor Quentin really can't control it well at all. I thought a really good example is the loss of Caddy's virginity to Dalton Ames, right? Where he tried to stand up for her to fight Dalton. He failed to kind of uphold her her innocence, if you will. But then that kind of bleeds over a couple of times. Oh, yeah, several times. And to me, it kind of cultivates to that scene with Gerald Bland, where he ends up fighting him at this picnic, confusing him with Dalton Ames at the time is, is kind of how I interpreted it. But the best part about this is, okay, so if he's confusing these characters and what they stand for, right, in terms of protecting the innocence and, you know, not a, a loss, he gets into a fight with Gerald, and what happens? He gets bloodied. And losing blood down your face is very symbolic, I feel like, to losing one's virginity. Yeah, symbolism, again, is dramatic here. Uh, this is a part of the story I think that's very confusing for people when the, the crossing of the two characters and what it could truly mean. I think Faulkner admits that because he keeps making a reference to Twilight, which Twilight is very famous for being the representation between night and day. It's not, it's not a third state. It's in between states. And I believe that was the original working title for this novel before it was released was Twilight. And he makes a <laughs> reference at that point when he's bleeding after this fight of marching towards Twilight. Quentin is literally in between states, in between time, between the present and the past. He's literally being beaten up by it. So are you trying to tell me that Quentin is the original Edward? He's the original Twihard, right? <laughs> if we're going to talk the innocence here. We have to talk about cleansing and rebirth. My friend Crypto, we've been through this enough times. What is the ultimate symbol of cleansing oneself and rebirth? Baptism. Well, yes, water, cleansing. Water. And it's not, it's yeah. not even just Christianity. It's also true in other Asian languages, too. Water is a symbol of rebirth yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. cleansing, right? Yeah. So here's what's interesting about this chapter to me is, I don't know about your personal experiences, but... If you've ever known someone that's truly addicted to something, they find these excuses to constantly put themselves near their object of desire. Yeah. yeah. And you'll notice throughout his whole life here, Quentin, and even in this day, consistently finds himself coming back to the stream, the stream that muddied his sister's knickers as she lost her innocence. And he ex that's the moment that I think all the Compsons started to experience the world in a different way. For Quentin, it's the loss of innocence, a.k.a. sexuality at that point in time, experienced through Caddy. He constantly finds himself coming back to a stream or river the whole day, whether it's he sees that 25-pound trout that you can get a reward for. He sees the rowing individual that's kind of rowing. He's, I think he's uh, crossing the bridge or somewhere around there when he sees those three boys. And uh, Julio comes and attacks him and again beats him up for the loss of his sister. He constantly is putting himself in water and ultimately drowns himself with the metal shoes in the water. I, I know he's a little bit self-harming, but he does have a pretty 
have a pretty rough go at it over the course of the story, and you can't blame him to try to go back to that innocence and then the water corrupting him further as he delves down into, you know, the, the perversion of everything. It's really sad. Well, think about it this way. It goes, it goes even deeper than that. He's killing himself, okay? So another way we can say this is that he's crucifying himself because he's doing it to himself as a punishment, right? And he's doing yeah. it on the water, which is representative of the moment of when his sister lost her innocence, going back to that moment where they became connected and this whole Dalton Ames losing a virginity. So he is figuratively crucifying himself on the past in this moment. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I ask you, why do you think that, and we're a little bit off topic here, but I think it's still relevant of Quentin thinks he needs to be punished. Because he is connected with his sister in the same way that Benji is connected with Caddy, in the same way that Jason is connected with Caddy. Each of them is tied to Caddy in a very specific way, and he failed to protect her innocence. That is Quentin's ultimate virtue, is that protection of sexuality and innocence, and he failed at it. So if Caddy fails at it, he fails at it. Do you it. think the divorce has anything to play in that? I think it has more to do with the... Uh, illegitimate child more so than the divorce. Okay, so that's sin. Okay. And I think you could break this down, and we'll talk about this whether we want to do that. We can do a whole video on the Greek side of things and religion. I don't know if we want to go that way. I think right now I want to focus on time in the Old South. Oh, I agree. I think those are the two main elements that Faulkner is trying to portray here in this story. But I think there are some subtle nods along the way as well. To, to give some motivation to this character may help someone understand a little bit of why he's doing these things, why this matters, and how time is so relevant to these characters. So let's go back to the only time you have power is in the present, right? Because you can't change the past, and there's no access to the future. All you can do is prepare for the future by acting in the present. What does Quentin do with this power? And I just can't help but laugh that the ending is like he's brushing his teeth. He's like preening himself. Like it's the most banal of activities is how he chooses to spend his power in the present. Yeah, it's all these trivial things. But I think that's a good representation of human people themselves because you see that a lot of times and people want to take care of themselves before they're going to end it all because I'm going to go on my terms. Right. If I'm going to halt myself in this moment forever which may be what he's doing. So the best way to actually be in the present is to kill the past. He's crucifying himself on the past is the argument we made. He might as well as make himself look nice and pretty for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that we, we think that those things are so trivial, but to him, they are super important because they're something he can control before he makes the ultimate change. So Faulkner leads us down this path of the present is constantly assaulted by the past. You are made up of your past decisions. I like this quote. Father said, a man is the sum of his misfortunes. One day you'll think misfortune would get tired, but then time is your misfortune, Father said. A gull on an invisible wire attached through space dragged. You carry the symbol of your frustration into eternity. And I think this adds to that fatalism argument that you must enact chronology. And that's what Quentin is doing. Yeah, it's really dark. 
It is. So my argument for Quentin is this is Faulkner saying the present can't escape the past. It assaults you, it haunts you, and it forces you to face it. You're going to pay for it one way or another, right? Jason being a representative of the future, if you will, in a very weird way. It's it's Faulkner's view of the future. This is not the Dickensian view, right? Yeah, this is where I started to see the blurry lines become a little bit less and less, but it becoming more difficult to understand. Well... What I like about it is this is clearly, before you know, in terms of structure, this is the most structured section. Yes. And if you think about it, when you, what area of time do you have the most control over? Arguably, you could say you have more control over the future because you can shape and push things to shape the future a specific way. Even though the only time you have power is the present, the only thing you can shape in theory is the future. Because you can't change the past, right? And I think that Jason here is is trying to do that. I mean, he's he's a smart guy, he's capable, and he's trying to plan for the future. But everything keeps seem to knock him back, and he wants to set up, you know, the good job, and he wants to have a good life and move forward. But he can't escape all those problems that his family had of the past. You can't shape the future without knowing your past or understanding the past, right? When he's looking at poor job of that, yeah. And when he's looking at Miss Quentin, you know, making sure she goes to school and all that, it's a very interesting dynamic that I think is hard to break down. And I think one of the things that's very interesting to me is how he kept going to the stock market kind of play of of asking kind of the price of things. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you look at a cash settled contract, do you know what that's called? The futures, right? It's called the future. I should say futures contract, but yes, it's the futures. futures. So literally... And Jason isn't doing futures here. He's just doing trades. But there's all these allusions to the future in terms of what Jason's planning for and thinking about. But why does he constantly fail? And I think, too, in there, you think of what is he trading? It's things that have an uncertain future, and that's crops, the the, the cotton plants. Because you don't know if your crop is going to be you know successful or not or if there's going to be a outbreak or you know pestilence or whatever is going to happen. So he's betting on uncertainty as well. Well, and I have a lot to talk about that with the Old South in terms of what you own. I think there's a pretty big discussion there for that. Yeah. Now, one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed this, did you notice how often they used flesh and bone in this section? Oh, I I didn't pick up on that. So I can't use the, I didn't want to do the bone count because they say bones a lot in chapter one with Nancy's bones, the the horse, not the maid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> makes me makes me angry that people think that we would just leave a maid and make children look at it throughout the years. It's like, no, that's not how the world works. All right. <laughs> 10 of the 21 usages of the word flesh, though, so half, a little under half, of the usage of the word flesh are just in chapter three alone. Okay, so that, that appearance hit me with it. So this takes place on what day in the Christian calendar? Uh, it's Good Friday. So what happened on Good Friday? So this is the crucifixion of Christ. So maybe we're not talking about Jason's future here is what I might make the argument for, but the future of race relations, particularly when we start to make more arguments in our next video about how Jason represents a certain version of the South. And this op- the next section, chapter four, opens on Easter Sunday, a.k.a. the rebirth of Christ, right? Yeah. It's good. It's kind of cool how it all mixes together there. Okay, so now how is Jason obsessed with Caddy? 
he did not get the job that he wanted to be the banker because of this illegitimate child, again, a loss of innocence, that made him, that made the, the Herbert basically leave because of, of Caddy's adulterous activities. Yeah. So literally, we have Jason blaming the past for his misfortunes. We have children being born out of wedlock for him to blame the misfortune and his issues of today. Yeah, and he is bitter about it. Oof. Well, he talks about wanting to get rid of Benji, right? Send him to the asylum. And Miss Quentin, he rides because she's kind of a food ticket for him, right? She, he's getting money from his mother. And I think this is an interesting way to look at this too, because if you think about the New South, and we'll go more into this next week, but the New South, they lost control of ownership over slaves. And it became the only way to abuse their power, right? They didn't get rid of racism with the the loss of slavery, right? Right. But what what they started to do is they used money and violence to control the African-American, now freed ex-slaves, if you will, at this point in time. And here, you'll see he constantly threatens to abuse or beat Luster, and he constantly abuses and takes and steals money where he can from his family and other Southerners to control power, much in the way Faulkner would argue the Southerner way of life was post-slavery. Yeah. So is he, he's doing all of this to control his future or what he wants to become his future. Well, not only is he controlling his future, he is taking away the future of others. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would say he's like he's like vilified the future of everyone for his own personal gain. And and exactly that is the original old south sin as well. Is he did not learn from the sins of his his past in order to shape his future more appropriately, I think is the argument Faulkner is making with time and Jason. I think it's kind of crazy that Jason is the most difficult to understand the concept of time, but his chapter reads the easiest compared to Quentin and Benji's. Very well, interesting. I, I love that because this this book just gets more structured as you go. And isn't that true of time too? You have the most control over the future. You can shape the most with your future as opposed to the present being the battlefield like we see in Quentin's line, uh, in Quentin's story. And the past being immalleable and un- being impotent to be able to change in Benji's view. I think it's very intellectually challenging the way that Faulkner presents time as opposed to maybe how we typically think it. But I think that's what makes this book so engaging for so many people. I don't even know if you have to articulate it, but you feel this impotence that these characters have. You feel the assault that the past has and the importance the past has for learning from to make appropriate decisions for the future. You don't even have to articulate that. You know that feeling. Yeah, and I think as you said, that as the book goes on, it it feels like as almost as you age, you have less control and you think, I'm wiser, I should understand more, but you reflect back on all of your mistakes and you understand less about the future and maybe only just more about yourself. Now, I know that we're still working through this. I know you haven't finished the last section. This isn't this isn't a spoiler, but I'll point out the last section has a heavy focus from an omniscient narrator perspective on Dilsey. And we have this quote from her where she says, I seed the beginning and now I seize the ending. So you can see that 
what we're going to get with this last section, for those of you that have read it already, again, this won't be a spoiler if you haven't, is you're going to step out of the Compson world. You'll notice I kept making the argument for how Caddy was a past figure who's never in the present, but assaults each of these boys' decisions and values and virtues. Dilsey, however, is not a Compson and is not assaulted by Caddy. You're going to get an external view on these events from the omniscient narrator, kind of Dilsey, kind of Jason's point of view, omnisciently, in this next section that allows you to take a step back from a very Compson-centric world. And this is the, the, the alpha and the mega. I see everything, not necessarily all time, but all knowing and eternal time, if you will, kind of from the point of view of the last section. I could understand. I, not even read it yet, I could see that, because Dilsey seems to be the all omnipresence in all of their lives and seems to be almost like a positive guiding force you have a little bit more of that as we spoke about and we haven't touched in this video is the biblicalness of it as well i think yeah and i'm still struggling as to whether we'll do a biblical specific video but stay tuned for next week because next week we are going to go more into the specific american ways of life with old south with the new south with what it meant to be a slave versus a freed slave at this point in time. You'll see that this character, in particularly in Dilsey sections, explored very well, along with Jason, that I think it helps explain these characters even further. But time definitely belongs, I think, more to the Benji and Quentin section and is explored to a lesser extent uh, with, with Jason and, and Dilsey, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm excited to get to the, the Dilsey section. I feel like the progression of this book has just been so fascinating where could it go wrong from here, right? You start off on such a low, high note, high note, low note, and then you're just progressing through these people's lives, and it is it is assaulting your senses of time, and then to throw in all this other, it's just it's incredible. So uh, I hope to see you guys in the next video. Well, all right, guys, we post videos two to three times a week. Every Monday and Thursday, we'll have a video with a bonus video on Tuesdays when we can. If you're down for literature discussions like this, Hit that subscribe button, leave us a comment down below, and let us know what your thoughts are and how you interpreted time in this book. We'd love to hear from you. Una out. Peace.